starting that work with true relationship building and, and just going in with an open and honest mind and um, kind of just going with the flow, I guess, in some ways, but um, really just thinking about how to be a better partner in that work and how to build a relationship with that community. The Life in Motion podcast is brought to you by Actual Outdoors. They help build beautiful brands that highlight the approachable and authentic parts of outdoor recreation. Said simply, they keep it real. Learn more at actualoutdoors.com. This is the Life in Motion audio experience, a podcast about travel, action sports, culture, and more. What's up? And welcome to episode 129 of Life in Motion. I've got Berkeley Bryant with me from Blue Sky Funders Forum. They engage and inspire others to make investments to make a difference within their outdoor communities. I'm excited to hear her story and learn why this call to action is so important. Berkeley, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really thrilled to be here. Yes, yes. I'm, I'm excited to, to kind of learn all um, that you all are doing at Blue Sky. Um, and, and, you know, it seems like a definitely kind of a different, a unique uh, kind of twist, uh, you know, to make the outdoors better. But before we do that, let's start with your story. You know, who are you fr- or who are you? Where are you from? Hobbies you had growing up? Kind of what led you down this path? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Lots of questions. Um, Yeah. So again, my name is Berkeley Bryant. Uh, I use she, her pronouns. And I currently live in North Carolina with my partner, my dog and my two cats. Um, But I grew up in a very small town in North Texas called Highland Village. And um, it was a really green community, lots of access to green spaces and the outdoors. And I was, was really privileged in that way. Um, to grow up in that space. And so I grew up in in Texas and was always outside. I had an older brother who uh, I look up to immensely and he was always running around outside. So of course I was following him and uh, annoying him as little sisters do. <laughs> so uh, yeah, so I was always just running around outside. There was this really cool space alongside my house that had these really tall hedges and I kind of made my little clubhouse back there and yeah. Um, it was my own little secret hideout and no one was allowed in there. No boys allowed, of course, including my brother. Um, and it was just this kind of little space for me. And so I was just, I always remember being outside um, and, and playing around. And I think what really brought me to this space was that love for the outdoors. But also there was um, kind of a one experience that repeated itself annually that really connected me with the outside and, and um, inspired me to pursue a career in natural resources. And that was Sea Camp, um, S-E-A, Sea Camp. And it was a camp for kids who were into marine biology. So super nerdy. And I loved it. <laughs> um, we studied science and biology and anatomy and ecology, and conservation and all kinds of really cool stuff. Um, I started when I was a little kid in elementary school and I went all the way through high school graduation. Oh, wow. And every, yeah, it was so cool. Every single summer I went. Um, and I was, I was really, really privileged to do that. And my parents encouraged me to do that every year. Um, inspired me to be a marine biologist and study in the outside. So desperately wanted to study sharks and turtles. (laughs) Um, and of course I changed careers a little while back, but, uh, that really instilled in me a love for the outdoors and that ultimately brought me to my position with blue sky. 
That's awesome. And I, I was going back to um, kind of your head story. I, I do remember um, making my own forts in the woods, um, except yes. uh, we were uh, I had a younger sister, so I was the oldest and it was kind of the same thing. Oh, no, you're not allowed in here type of deal. So I can definitely relate there. Um, but it's really cool about the the sea camp awesome. um, and especially that that you you did it for so long. I mean, it was it. I, you know, however many years that was, was it common for, I guess, um, kids to do it every single year for that long, like from elementary school through high school? Uh, no. <laughs> so that's a good question. Um, I was probably one of the few who, who went back year after year. Um, so I did it for, for 10 years. And by the end of it, I was an honorary junior camp counselor. Um, and so they typically only it. let during, oh yeah, oh yeah. I knew my stuff back and went forwards. Um, and so they only typically let college students who were in the marine biology program be the the camp counselors. And um, I just reached out and was like, hey, I, I feel like I know this camp like the back of my hand. <laughs> Do you need any help this summer? And they said, yeah, come on down. So I did camp for one week and then I was a camp counselor the next week, which was amazing and, and super fun. Um, yeah, so it was it was every summer for ten years for about a week each time, and every camp was different. They had different programs for different age levels and interest. Um, so when I was super small, it was like really basic stuff. It was more your typical summer camp away experience, but um, with a mix of marine biology. And then by the end, I was you know dissecting sharks and going seining outside in the Gulf Coast and. Um, talking with professionals in the field to see what a career in this field might look like for me. So yeah, it, it really ranged. Um, but it was, it was incredible and I, I love it. So shout out to the Texas A&M university at Galveston <laughs> crew. Um, I love and miss you guys. <laughs> That's awesome. And, and the reason I asked that if, if it was common or not, because you, I mean, you know how kids are, you know, they sometimes get really excited about something and then that, that excitement kind of dies off because they switch to something else and, and so forth. Yeah. Um, so, but it's cool that you obviously kind of found that passion and, and latched onto it, which obviously, you know, eventually sort of led, led you to where you are now. So, um, so after kind of getting that experience, kind of uh, uh, working your way up the ranks, if you will, at a young age, learning the different things and then helping uh, with the camp itself, what what kind of happened uh, after that, you know, after you graduated high school and then moved on um, to study and, and that kind of stuff? Yeah, so I, by 12th grade, when I graduated high school, I was 100% dedicated to being a marine biologist. Um, that's all I wanted to do. That's all I really like envisioned for myself. That was my ultimate goal. And I desperately wanted to study sharks or turtles, but I couldn't decide which. Um, and I, you know, applied for different colleges and went on site visits with my mom. And we went and visited, uh, University of California at Santa Cruz, um, go banana slugs. And I absolutely loved it. Um, I thought it was perfect. They had an incredible marine biology program. Um, and I got in and was accepted and loved it. So I was all set for it. And, you know, of course, I live in Texas. So that was pretty far commute to college <laughs> and A little bit. Um, out of state tuition. And California is just crazy expensive, um, even back in my college days. So my mom just had a conversation with me and just said, you know, super honestly, 
if marine biology is what you want to do and you're dedicated to it, then we will figure out the financial side of it and get you to California. But if at any point in your college career, you want to change your major to something that you could find closer to home, um, you know, let's, let's think about bringing you back closer to home, um, maybe in-state tuition, um, maybe to a college that I could actually drive to home in one day. Um, so I really appreciated her, you know, her honesty in that, in that prompt to just kind of think critically about my future. Um, and it made me think back on some of the experiences that I had at sea camp. And I actually talked to a marine biologist, um, a woman in Galveston who was working, um, and was one of our kind of like advisors during the sea camp. And she told me, and I, I think I kind of forgot about it when I was applying to colleges because I had this like romantic, idealistic version of marine biology in my head. <laughs> but she told me that it's so largely lab based and computer work. And, you know, you're working in like an office with a bunch of commu- computers and other people and you're doing studies and lab work and there's a lot of computer work and plotting and data analysis and all kinds of stuff. And I think I just kind of forgot about that and was like, no, I'm going to be the one person who is always out in the field. Um, And, you know, those marine biologists do exist. There are biologists who are working out in the field the majority of the time. But she stressed that those positions are very few and far between. So I was just thinking about it, thinking about it, and I finally decided, you know what, I don't want to study natural resources and the environment. I want to conserve it and educate people about it. And that was my ultimate goal as a marine biologist was to be this really cool, funky woman marine biologist out there who had just like a ton of science facts and wanted to teach the world about it. So I... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. She is my idol. And I have the curly hair matching it and everything. That's Um, awesome. Honestly, that should be my Halloween costume every year. Yes. uh, (laughs) Yeah. So I I took my mom's words to heart. I switched my career path. I ended up at Colorado State University, um, go Rams, and absolutely fell in love with the Warner College of Natural Resources in Fort Collins, Colorado. It was the perfect fit. It was probably one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life to go there. Um, I really found my people and my community there and ultimately ended up with a degree in environmental education, which was kind of what I wanted to do all along, but um, just not specific to marine biology anymore. Yeah. Well, so so that that is really interesting because you know, you, you had an idea of, of what marine biology was going to look like as far as like being in the field and, and that kind of stuff. Um, but it's, it, it sounds like it kind of worked at the perfect time, I guess, of, uh, self-realization mm-hmm. of, Hey, you know, this isn't like this, this job is a, or this career is a little bit different than that. I want to be doing X. So how do I do X, but still kind of make that impact within the outdoors and help others and all, all that. So it sounds like that was a great, great opportunity. So what, so I guess, so once you kind of got your, uh, you know, degree in the outdoor education and whatnot, where, I guess, what was the the next, uh, path? Yeah. Um, another interesting question and it's definitely not a straightforward path to where I'm at now. 
Um, I graduated from Colorado State with a degree in environmental education. And I had some experience throughout college as an environmental educator. Um, I worked for a nonprofit. I worked for a state park for a while. And so after I graduated, um, I kind of drifted for a little bit. I, I went back to the state park and I was do their sole environmental educator for the park. And that was awesome. But uh, I kind of had this realization that I really dislike teaching, <laughs> um, <laughs> which is unfortunate for an environmental educator to realize. Uh, I just there were too many things that I did not enjoy dealing with. Um, uh, insurance forms, uh, legal authorization for kids, uh, behavior management, dealing with kids, um, dealing with their parents sometimes. And, you know, just trying to, I just wanted kids to be, you know, as, uh, as excited and interested in science and the outdoors as I was. And that wasn't always the case. And, and that's totally fine. But I just realized like, I'm not the person to reach out and make a connection with those kids who really couldn't care less about the outdoors. Um, and God love those people who are out there because I have friends still in the environmental education movement who are amazing and, and can connect with those kids like no one else. Um, and kudos to them. I'm just, I'm just not one of those people. So I sort of felt like I wanted the environmental education field, but the field did not want me. And which was really disheartening and and awful to feel, right? Because I just spent all this time, yeah, you know, all these years going to sea camp and all these years in college and studying my butt off to get this degree and um, did all this work and this volunteering and jobs and internships and just kind of realizing that it wasn't meant for me sucked. Um, so I drifted for a little bit. I through some of my environmental ed jobs, I got experience doing social media management, website management, and communications work. So I said, well, you know what, maybe I'll like default on that. And I'll just try to be in marketing and communications for a little bit and see where that takes me. So I moved home to Texas to be closer to my family, did some marketing communications jobs there, um, ultimately met my now husband. And so I moved out to North Carolina to be with him. And I ended up at North Carolina State University in Raleigh. And I was the social media manager for the College of Natural Resources there, which was a really cool combo of my natural resources background and education and my current work experience in social media management. And that community was amazing. I love NC State and I loved working for a university, but I ultimately just did not do well doing full-time social media work. Um, it wasn't for me. It was for me personally, it was super draining. Um, I'm not very like uh, subscribed to relevant pop culture and working in social media. You kind of need to know <laughs> yeah. what's going on in the world. Um, so I just didn't find my, uh, my groove there, but being back in the natural resources world offered me so many opportunities to connect with researchers and academics and professors doing this incredible work, um, at the intersections of so many different fields within the natural resources space. 
And so I was talking to one of them, um, Dr. Katherine Stevenson. She runs the environmental education lab at NC State University. And, uh, you know, she kind of had a frank conversation with me one time and just said, you know, there are other ways to be in the environmental education field than being an actual educator, right? And <laughs> it honest, honestly blew my mind. I, I had never thought about how environmental education is not just educators. It's a whole field of so many different people and so many different ways to engage in this community and in this work. And um, so then she recommended me for the job at Blue Sky and I haven't looked back since. It's It's been incredible um, to feel like the environmental education field finally wants me as much as I want it. <laughs> um, and to feel like I, I have a community and I have a space and I'm able to use my degree and my love for the outdoors, but um, in such a different way than I thought was possible at first. Yeah, absolutely. And and so back to the the teaching thing, um, I I totally get what what you were saying with that. Uh, my wife's an art teacher uh, for middle school. Uh, I don't know how she I don't know how she does it. She's very good at her job, and she's very good <laughs> with the kids. Um, I on the other hand would would not be in that case. Uh, so so I totally right. <laughs> get it. You know, it it does take take uh, certain people to do it, but you know, even even kind of through that and that realization you know, obviously, and then kind of pivoting to the social media aspect of it. And that kind of led you to the next opportunity, which ultimately led you to what you're doing now, which was like the aha moment, it sounds like. Um, it, mm. it, it's it's cool to hear kind of that persistent and kind of that open mindedness to like, keep working through it and, and to find those opportunities. So, um, you know, when you got that yeah. recommendation for uh, Blue Sky, what I, I guess... I'm kind of going backwards here, but so what, what was it about it that kind of uh, made it attractive to you as an opportunity? And then also let's, let's talk a little bit, uh, I guess that will be a good lead into actually what it is, what you all do and our, everything else. Yeah, absolutely. So when I first got the job description for the job that I have now with Blue Sky, um, at first I was like, I'm in no way qualified for this position. I <laughs> have never worked in anything to do with philanthropy other than being on the receiving end of grants. Um, and so I have no idea how this field works. I don't know any of the people in it. Um, and who am I to, you know, connect with these funders that have millions of dollars and, um, and have this huge influence on the environmental education work and people like NOAA and the, uh, uh, National Environmental Education Foundation, NEF. And, you know, there's these big names in the field and um, that I would have to work with on a daily basis. And I thought, there's no way that I'm I'm the right person for this job. But as I looked more into it, you know, this this uh, connection between community and, and membership and um, relationship building with a dash of communications and marketing work um, and, you know, just this personal outreach type of... Uh, process that this position would need, I was like, you know what, I do, I do do that. I, I don't do that in the necessarily the philanthropy field, but I do do this work. So um, I applied and, you know, had conversations with different people in, in the field and um, a couple of folks who had kind of followed a similar path in the environmental education space, moving from teaching towards the philanthropic side. And I just fell in love with it. I thought it was so cool and so unique. Um, 
And honestly, Jeremy, I will tell you, I think there was a part of me that was wildly relieved that the field didn't completely reject me. That yeah, that well, there was a sense. space. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I just I felt so defeated after years of teaching and being in social media and just never finding the right space in the environmental education field. And it's it's daunting and it's honestly depressing if if you're so passionate about something and you just you go after it so hard and it just keeps failing. Um, I was just so relieved to find something that I felt like could be a good place for me and could draw on my strengths and could make me grow. Um, and that I felt happy when, so yeah, it was, it was amazing. And I, I've been here since March of 2021 and, and loving it. So yeah, so kind of a wild path to getting here, but, um, to, like you said, to dive into what it is that blue sky does and what I do. Um, so like you said, kind of near the top, um, blue sky funders forum, is a collaborative of funders that works to inspire and increase the philanthropic investment in the community of funders that support equitable access and meaningful outdoor experiences. So that was a lot of really big words. Ultimately, our mission at Blue Sky Funders Forum or Blue Sky is to increase the amount of money that's going towards connecting people with the outdoors and providing um, equitable access to the outside. So that's really broad, right? Um, cause there's tons of ways that people connect with the outdoors Yeah. and there's tons of ways our members, our members do their work. Um, some of them are, you know, only funding state parks within their state. Some of them are only funding nonprofit environmental education centers in a really specific geographic region. And then we have other funders who are working at this large national and even international scale to ch change the movement um, through infrastructure and movement building and power building. So, so yeah, Blue Sky is a, is a membership organization. We have 43 members across the uh, United States and Canada. Um, we're constantly growing and our membership is constantly evolving, but it's it's really broad and really exciting work. Um, and yeah, I, I love it. Blue Sky is a really interesting and unique um, community of, of folks. Yeah, no, that's that's super interesting. Um, and once again, I think uh, that shows how much passion you had for this, even though it, like obviously looking back on it, how kind of disappointing it was. Uh, but the fact that you stuck through all that passion mm -hmm. to get where you're at now is awesome. So um, pat on pat on your back for that one. Uh, not giving yeah. up. But so it but is. yeah, <laughs> but no, that's so, so it's interesting. So so when you say um, 43 members and it obviously kind of being based around funders are members like businesses or individuals that, you know, maybe have a lot of money. Like, what does that look like? And then as far as like the you mentioned kind of across uh, the states and then Canada and stuff, is it is it like based on like regions or like, I guess, what does that hope like that map look like as far as the members and also like the specific areas? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think what you're asking kind of alludes to the larger question of how in the world does philanthropy work? Um, 
And I'm still on that learning journey because like I said, (laughs) this was my first, you know, toe in the water in the philanthropic space and working with funders and nonprofits. And so, um, yeah, so to kind of like back up a little bit, there's, uh, there are funders and there's those who are funded or grantees or partners, they're sometimes called. So um, I work more on the side with the funders and the grant makers, although I have lots of connections to the nonprofit and non-funder space, which I'm, I'm happy to chat about more. Um, so our funders in Blue Sky are grant makers and funders working in the space of environmental literacy, um, connections to the outdoors, and meaningful experiences outside. So like I said, it's anything from, you know, literally getting people outside to selling outdoor recreation equipment that encourages and allows people to get outside. So our members um, have a wide variety of uh, range in terms of what kinds of things they're funding. And so, for instance, one of our members is REI, um, Recreational Equipment Inc. Um, And they're a national organization and they sell uh, goods um, to to folks around the world um, to get outside outdoor gear. So they're you know they're on kind of one side. They're like a what's referred to as a corporate philanthropic entity. Yeah. Um, they are a, a corporate business that makes enough money to have a philanthropic arm of their business, and they use that philanthropic money to invest in communities um, to better increase outdoor access and um, equitable outdoor access. So that's one side. And then I would say the opposite end is private family foundation um, type of philanthropic entities. So these are folks whose family, whether it's them directly or generations back, have had you know a lot of money and invested it in the right, the best ways and keep making a lot of money and are using that money to do whatever they want. So um, some of our funder members are, you know, completely um, funding environmental education and literacy, and that's all they do. And then there's other funders who work at, you know, a larger scale and environmental education is just kind of one component of their larger portfolio of work. So we have a really wide, diverse group of members. Um, and I think to answer one of your earlier questions, uh, we Blue Sky is not based in the United States and Canada solely. That just so happens to be kind of how we grew and, and that the movement that we're, mo- or the, excuse me, the regions that we're moving towards is the United States and Canada, but um, we are open and interested in, in members outside of North America, North America, and we definitely talk with a lot of funders outside of that space as well. Um, so we're by no means geographically bound. It's it's really anyone, any funder in the world who engages in environmental literacy and connecting people to the outdoors is um, kind of under this blue sky tent of funders. That that's awesome. So so in like a in a some in one sense, are you almost like, like the middleman? So, you know, you find these funders that have the resources to help others and then the nonprofits or the organizations, Hey, I got this project in, uh, Northwest Missouri that I, that we want to work on, but we need, you know, X amount of money or 
whatever kind of help with that. And then you kind of connect those two people together because that, you know, maybe they need uh, rock climbing equipment. I'm just throwing something random out there. So you reach <laughs> out to REI and say, hey, I have I have X nonprofit over here. They need this. That's a good match type of deal. Or is it more is is it uh, less specific, I guess? Yeah, that's a really good question. And we get that a ton um, because it's that would obviously be a huge service to both funders and nonprofits. Um, and there are organizations that are out there doing that work um, as the middle person. But no, we Blue Sky is not that middle person. So I sort of think of it kind of like a triangle where there's there's three parts of it on the first major chunk are all the people who are on the ground actually doing the work of connecting people with the outdoors and in whatever way that looks like, you know, science museums, uh, science teachers, uh, outdoor recreation professionals, um, you know, writers and academics and researchers, all kinds of folks kind of um, in that first major chunk working actually to research and understand and connect people with the outdoors. And so those are, quote unquote, the non-funders or non-profits of the world. And then the second layer, um, a bit smaller, but super influential and powerful are the funders, the grant makers who have all this money um, and resources and power in this situation. And then the top teeny tiny layer above that are organizations that bring the funders together to learn and to grow and to expand their uh, the impact that they're having. And that's me, that's Blue Sky Funders Forum. So we don't work in between the funders and nonprofits. We do have some methods of lifting up the work of nonprofits and getting it in front of funders so that they can see, you know, kind of what's going on in the field. But ultimately, it's up to those funders to actually fund that nonprofit. We don't make recommendations of like, hey, REI, here's this community in Northwest Missouri that needs rock climbing gear. You should go fund them. Um, but we do say, hey, funders in this space, look at this really cool organization in Northwest Missouri. Um, they're doing this really sweet stuff to get, you know, maybe like inner city uh, youth of color out to rock climb um, for the first time and to have these experiences outside. Uh, such cool work. And also here's their website if you want to go learn more and, and check them out and contact them. So um, we are, we're a collaborative for funders. We, our mission is to work with funders, but Blue Sky sees the work of supporting funders is not possible without having an understanding of what's going on in that larger chunk of that triangle, right? Because we can't, we can't tell funders, um, you know, we can't inspire them to, to change their grant making or to do something different or to support a different organization um, without understanding what's going on in the field and what these non-funders need. So we connect with them in, in multiple different ways. Um, they advise Blue Sky in our programming and events. Um, we lift them up through our Rethink Outside initiative, um, and which I'm happy to talk about. And uh, through that, we kind of put them in front of funders. We bring them into that funder space to kind of disrupt some of those power dynamics um, that are so historically ingrained in this space um, to 
to lift their voices up and to show their stories and to show the impact of um, philanthropic dollars in the space. Okay, so yeah, that that makes more sense, uh, or not more sense, but it may, may, that makes sense how how that kind of relationship works, and it's it's cool mm-hmm. that you're able to help in that way, and you know, kind of make sure that no uh, no stone is unturned, you know, as far as you know, kind of on both sides. So, um, with that, you know, you men- mentioned some of your programs and that kind of stuff. What what are some of your programs and some of the things that you're most excited about that um, that you either have worked on that have been completed, or maybe some things that are kind of a continuous uh, project. Yeah. Um, so I'll talk about Blue Sky's work and then I'll also talk about Rethink Outside, which is a little separate, um, but super uh, deep in the work that I do. So Blue Sky um, hosts a lot of different programs and events um, for funders and grant makers um, in the space. And so some of the stuff that we've done in the past that I'm, I'm really proud to share is uh, we partnered with a communications consultant to host storytelling workshops. So how to how to do storytelling and how to tell your story and how to share it, um, how to do equitable storytelling. And we worked with our funders to encourage them to support their grantees or their community partners to attend these workshops for free. So we had several funders pay for their um, their grantees to attend these workshops so that their grantees can get be- better experience on storytelling. And so, you know, ultimately the goal is that they are able to increase their funding from other funders yeah. and um, have more resources. So that was really cool. And, and I guess in that way, we were kind of the middle person to, you know, to connect these funders with a, a different way to support their grantees. Um, so that's one thing that we've done in the past, and that's really cool. Um, some other things that we've done is uh, there's this whole kind of movement within grant making and the philanthropic space around trust-based philanthropy or you know equitable grant making practices. So if there are any nonprofits um, listening to this call, excuse me, this podcast, and thinking, God, I hate applying to grants. It takes so long. I get so little. Um, it's really extractive. Um, it's not fair. And I often don't get the grants. Um, I hear you. I see you. I validate your feelings. And <laughs> gosh, is it frustrating. I've been on that side of applying for grants and not getting them. It's really annoying. Um, and we just we spend so much time applying to these grants that we ultimately don't get. And in some ways, I don't blame people for feeling you know, like it's a waste of my time. So that's something that we're working as a community to change, um, to evolve into a more trust-based approach of grant making so that it's the onus is not on the grantee or the person who's applying for grants. The onus is on the funder to do the work, to make a relationship with potential grantees, to keep up a relationships with their current grantees, and we encourage something called going beyond the check. So not just writing a check for an annual grant, but really diving into that community, accessing um, or uh, offering resources and expertise, offering, you know, a space for them to just come and chat and be themselves. And it's not, um, uh, it's not so power dynamic heavy. Um, 
you know, it recognizes that funders are the people who have the money and grantees are the people who need the money. So that power dynamic is probably never going to go away just the way it works. But this idea of um, putting in so much work to get a grant that is worth so little um, and applying for a grant year after year after year for just a small amount of money. So we, Blue Sky, um, and a couple of other organizations collaborated with an organization called the Trust-Based Philanthropy Project, whose like sole mission is to advocate to funders on why they should switch to trust-based philanthropy and how to do that at all levels of their work. Um, and so that was really cool because I, I got hired in March of 2021, and that month we had the first trust-based philanthropy webinar. Um, and it honestly blew my mind. It really opened the doors to like a whole new side of philanthropy for me and um, more an equitable and trust-based way of doing this work. Um, and I'm really passionate about advocating for that through with our funders. Um, so we've done a couple of learning series with them. Um, future opportunities with that in that space could be that we host, you know, a learning cohort with, with our funder members to really dive into trust-based philanthropy practices and, and figure out how they can do this logistically. Cause it's one thing to listen to a webinar and people are talking about all the cool things that will happen if you do trust-based philanthropy. And it's another thing to actually bring it to your board and, and implement it and do it. Um, so yeah, that's, so that's a couple of things that the blue sky is doing. Um, yeah. and then, Oh, go ahead. Oh, no, I would say it's great. I mean, and kind of a, a, a way to kind of rethink, you know, the average kind of grant program in that way. And it sounds like a, a much more uh, long term relationship uh, for both, which is obviously beneficial. Yeah. So, uh, no, that that sounds like a, a, a pretty awesome kind of program as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's really important. And um, our members are behind it and, and dedicated to the work. So that's definitely cool to see. Um, so those are just a couple of pieces of Blue Sky's work. We we do a lot more just beyond those two things, of course. Um, and then one thing uh, that I'll share is Rethink Outside. So Rethink Outside is a shared narrative campaign or a communications campaign that was co-generated through, I think, three years of um, inclusive conversations and processes to really to move the vital work of connecting people with the outdoors from a quote unquote nice to have to an absolute necessity. So thinking on, you know, marketing campaigns and the narrative that's out there about what it means to be outside, it's largely, you know, a nicety. It's, um, it's a privilege. It's white dominated. It's able bodied dominated. It is privileged people dominated and it's, you know, kind of like a, a break from reality is going outside and, um, and connecting people with the outdoors. And that's just a really, uh, bad way of looking at it and ultimately an effective way of looking at it. And so rethink outside through various different ways is trying to change that narrative of saying, having access to the outdoors is not just a nice thing to have. It's an absolute necessity for, for all people. Um, 
and especially highlights the need for people of color. Um, and I mean, there's tons of studies on what uh, the health determinants um, of people who have access to the outdoors and uh, the social impact that that has and the community impact that access to the outdoors has. Um, it dramatically increases people's quality of life and their health and their social well-being to have access outside and to have meaningful outdoor experiences. So Rethink Outside is this larger communications campaign um, to change that narrative and to showcase the need for outdoor access for all. And we do that in a lot of different ways. Um, but one thing that I'm really proud to talk about is the Rethink Outside Fellowship. This was a six-month fellowship specifically for Black, Indigenous, and people of color leaders and storytellers who are working in this field to change this narrative already or are inspired to change the narrative. Um, so it ran from October of 2021 to March of 2022 this year. And we had 20 fellows in the inaugural cohort. Um, they were from across the United States. They were a multi-generational group of people um, you know, some people had just graduated from college, some were in grad school, some were later in their careers, um, and everywhere in between. And they were working at so many different levels of of this space, this work, and it was really inspiring. Um, so we we gave them opportunities to connect amongst each other and then with peer organizations to, to just have that opportunity for them to connect and build relationships with other people. We got them in front of funders um, quite often. We also gave them funding to do a project on their own. Um, we hosted workshops to increase their communications and their leadership skills um, and a lot of other things. And ultimately it just provided a community for, for these people. Cause I think um, it can feel pretty lonely in this space. And especially from what we've heard as, as a person of color in this space. So that was incredible work. And I'm sure we'll um, we're thinking about doing an, another cohort in the future. So yeah, I'm, I'm really proud of that initiative and of rethink outside and that incredible work that we're doing um, through blue sky. That's awesome. And, and then so in that case, it was almost like, you know, you, you're bringing uh, this is not the right word, uh, but I'm, I'm going to say influencers kind of within that space that represented those people basically to help give them the resources where they could, you know, take it to wherever they actually lived or were from to kind of build up those communities in their areas in a sense. Yeah, yeah. So in some ways, yes. Um, so for instance, kind of using your word influencer. <laughs> I can't think Probably, of a better one, but you know, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, I know what you mean. Um, so Jose Gonzalez, who was the founder of Latino Outdoors, um, was the facilitator for, for this, uh, for this fellowship. So he was kind of the, you know, the guiding voice to all of the fellows um, throughout. And I don't know if he would enjoy me using the word influencer to talk about him, but um <laughs> He was, you know, he is um, a leader in the field. He is a major voice with a lot of power in this field. And as someone who founded an organization like Latino Outdoors, he has a wealth of knowledge and experience to share. So it was folks like him and um, Karen Ramos, who does Nature Chala on uh, Instagram. And 
Oh gosh. I mean, so many, so many other amazing folks. Um, we had people from, you know, across the nation and the world doing this amazing work who were advising and, and teaching and sharing their experiences and, um, to the fellows. And so, yeah, we had lots of opportunities for folks to just come in and have conversations with these fellows, um, both from the non-funder side and the funder side. So we hosted a like learning session and conversation between our fellows and funders in our space who just kind of broke down those power dynamics and talked about how to get funding in the field, how to build a relationship with a funder. What does it look like to be a person of color grant maker in this field? Um, how does it look when a funder and a grantee actually really have an equitable relationship and how to get one of those? Um, so it was it was a lot of providing resources and expertise and understanding and a lot of thought um, to the fellows and and like I said, ultimately just a community for them to gather together. That, no, that's awesome. And, and the the whole idea of kind of rethink out, outside or whatnot, uh, you know, is great because, you know, there's so many different, um, I'm sure barriers, you know, whether that actually be having access to the, the outdoors themselves or, uh, you know, even the equipment to participate in different outdoor activities um, can be quite expensive. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm sure that kind of plays into it as well. But, you know, to have have kind of the, the group of, of partners to kind of help with that and then provide the resources and then kind of grow those communities and kind of uh, break down those barriers is, is really awesome. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think a large part of our work through blue sky and rethink outside. And obviously it came up in the fellowship too, was recognizing not just the like resource barriers that folks might have to accessing the outside, in terms of, you know, transportation to a park or, um, you know, the money to buy rock climbing equipment or something like that. But ultimately, the historic inequities and the implications that history has had on especially communities of color um, and communities that are in rural areas, um, low income communities, and just all the historical barriers that have uh kind of grown up around them and, and made it so that it felt like the outdoors wasn't for them. Um, I mean, for hundreds of years, folks of color have been intentionally excluded from the outdoors and made to feel unsafe and like that space wasn't built for them. I mean, even today, marketing techniques and in, in major outdoor brands and spaces have show preference towards white communities and white able-bodied privileged communities. And there's a reason that a large majority of communities of color don't have easy access to green space in the outdoors as compared to white communities. White colonialists tried to teach indigenous and native folks that their traditions and practices in the outside and the outdoors were wrong. Um, And now a lot of scientists and academics are beginning to recognize the incredible traditional knowledge that native communities have about the outside and in some cases are exploiting that knowledge. And I think it's, I mean, it's important to remember that it really wasn't that long ago that Black communities were not allowed in public swimming pools, for example. And so all that generational knowledge and that trauma is passed down to folks today. And it makes me, it makes me so angry and sad that that's the case. 
Um, but I'm not surprised that not all folks of color feel comfortable outside. Yeah. Um, so I think, yeah, I think our work is like really just recognizing that and holding that truth. Um, and then pushing against it and making, making it a better future and, and recognizing that and, um, and thinking about how we can not let that happen again and, and in the future. Um, and then one other thing I, I wanted to mention too, kind of related to what you were talking about was I think the ways that folks connect with the outdoors varies from community to community and from person to person. So yeah. my experience as a, as a white privileged, able-bodied woman, as well as the feelings of many of my white colleagues have is definitely not the experience that a lot of folks of color have. Um, both, you know, in negative historical contexts and also just, just connecting with the outside is different for me than for other people. Um, for instance, we recently did a program with um, First Nations Development Institute, a another like kind of peer affinity group that connects uh, funders working in Native and Indigenous communities. And because of that, I got to talk with uh, several Indigenous and Native-led organizations. And they spoke to me about the fact that kind of this word that I use to connect people with nature, to quote unquote, connect them with the outside doesn't really resonate with them because nature is within them. They are nature and nature is them. And so they didn't feel like they had to purposefully connect with the outside. Um, so when we talk about getting people quote unquote outside or connecting people with the outdoors, I think it's really important to recognize the, the many, many ways that folks engage with the outside both currently and in the past. Um, and all this to say, there's still a lot of work to be done to make the outdoors truly accessible and welcoming to everyone. But there's also a lot of work that's already being done by phenomenal people of color um, and organizations led by people of color. And it's really inspiring to see. Um, and I'm really stoked to see what comes next from from those folks. Yeah, no, I, I, absolutely. And it's, you know, it's a, you know, at, at this point, it's almost like a uh, a mind or perspective change as well, because I I would I would guess that a lot of that stuff where it does kind of seem so um, uh, not as welcoming is sort of the the repetition from the way back past that we just kind of never got mm -hmm. out of, um, and so you know there there could there could probably be some. Uh, unintentionality is that a word uh to to some of that but just not thinking outside like not just you know not seeing things from the other side just because oh well this is how we've always done it and now you know it's affecting somebody this way but we're actually not realizing it how do how do we be more um intentional about that so i mean that that mind mind uh mind shift is is definitely uh definitely awesome so it's, it sounds like y'all are making some great headway and also you know uh, connecting with with the other people, are, you know, around the country and wherever else um, that are are doing it in their own communities as well, kind of a a mastermind in that way to kind of you know help help make that change and make that difference. So that's that's awesome. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, it's really incredible and and powerful and um, thought provoking work. So 
I love it. I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. So, so I think that will probably actually lead into, uh, you know, the one question I always like to ask, um, people is kind of one piece of advice our listeners can take away and, you know, kind of based, you know, we, we got kind of heavy in that last, uh, kind of little topic there. So I guess, <laughs> so, but so to that point though, what would your, I, I guess, piece of advice to be for, I guess, a local community, a local organization, a local, you know, outdoor group, however you want to classify them, what would your advice be to kind of, uh, shift their own perspective in that way to be more intentional. Like even, like I said, even if they're maybe not trying to seem that way, but they, but they are coming off that way or whatnot. Like what, what would you say to them to kind of help open their arms? <laughs> mm. Yeah, I think, um, yeah. If I'm understanding your question correctly, I think for me, what I would recommend is, starting with relationship. Um, so stop going into these communities, assuming that you know what's best and what they need. And, um, these like easy, fast solutions that you think are just, you know, going to fix the problem. Um, and begin the work with relationship and be really intentional and equitable in that space. So, um, you know, if you, for instance, let's just pick an example. If you are a funder and you want to work with, uh, rural communities, don't just go in with the assumption that all rural communities are such and such way that they are this political affiliation and this, um, race or ethnicity and this age and this level of income. And sure, those statistics are out there and you can Google them, I'm sure. But um, if you walk in with that assumption to that rural community, they're not going to respond and they're not going to appreciate it. And honestly, it's just rude. So go in with the assumption that you don't know anything and you want to build a relationship with them and you want to compensate that community for their time and their expertise and their energy in an equitable way. Um, compensate for them, compensate them for, for talking to you and for sharing their knowledge and their understanding with you. And then, you know, slowly over time, as you build trust with that community and learn what they need, ask them what they want from you. Ask them, ask them how you can be a better partner and and a better support to that community and, and figure out how to do that on your own. Um, and I think that goes for not just funders with, you know, tons of money to give away, but also just as people, um, I'll speak to the the Americans on this podcast, but we live on stolen indigenous land. Um, so how can you be a better partner to your local indigenous and native communities? What land do you live on? Are there any land trusts that you can volunteer with or donate? Are there uh, local tribes that you can, uh, give resources to donate funds or time or energy, um, materials to what do they need and how to work with them. And I would also urge people, especially white people in the room to, how to say this, I guess not go into a space assuming that it's meant for you. I think that is the narrative that we have grown up with and that we've taught ourselves 
that kind of all spaces are for us and built for us and dominated by us, by white people. But thinking about, um, you know, if you go to a your local Native American tribe or indigenous community, that space might not be for you. And that's OK. Um, that wasn't built for you. And and just understanding that. And so I think that was a really long winded way of saying, <laughs> I think, just starting that work with true relationship building and and just going in with an open and honest mind and um kind of just going with the flow i guess in some ways but um really just thinking about how to be a better partner in that work and how to build a relationship with that community yeah did that answer your question no it it absolutely did it absolutely did and you know i I love the emphasis on the the relationship and i think going along with that is um sharing empathy as well to you know Mm -hmm. whoever you're speaking with so that's excellent. Um, so to that point, where where can people find you online um, to to learn more, to get involved if they can, or you know anything like that? Yeah. So Blue Sky Funders is at blueskyfundersforum.org. You can also learn more about Rethink Outside, that communications campaign that I was talking about earlier, at rethinkoutside.org. We are on Twitter, um, Blue Sky Funders. And you can search for Blue Sky Funders Forum on LinkedIn as well. Um, you can sign up for our newsletters. We have newsletters for both funders and non-funders. Um, and please, you know, follow us and and reach out if you have any questions or you want to follow up on anything. Awesome. Well, everyone, definitely make sure uh, you check them out, see what they're up to. Uh, cl- clearly onto some uh, great stuff for the outdoors and, and really making those... Um, words, accessibility, and uh, everything else kind of uh, meaningful. So, uh, but I, I appreciate you uh, coming on to share your story, uh, the background and how you got here. Like I said, I'm, I'm glad you uh, you kept going on with that passion and found something you're, that's perfect for you right now. Um, and then also for all the work you're doing with the different organizations as well. So I wish you the best of luck in the future. Thank you so much. Thank you for providing the space and for lifting up other people's voices. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And hey, if you've made it this far and like what you've heard, go ahead and hit that subscribe button and let your friends know about life emotion. Until next time.